Welcome to Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Craig Blumenshine in our Fargo studios with my co-host, Ashley Thornburg. Hello, exciting show today. Ashley, you have a great interview. You're going to talk about that in just a second. It's packed, so let's get right to it. In the second half of today's show, we want to let our listeners know that we have an excerpt from the middle with Jeremy Hobson about this movie called War Game. It's a chilling thought, I guess, on if January 6th might happen again, and it does include comments from former United States Senator Heidi Heitkamp. But we are going to start today with former Congressman Beto O'Rourke. He is in Minot tonight to talk about voting. He's speaking at Main Street Books starting at 5 p.m. He is the founder of the voting rights and voter registration organization Powered by People. And he also wrote the book We've Got to Try, How the Fight for Voting Rights Makes Everything Else Possible. Beto O'Rourke, thanks for joining us and welcome to Main Street. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk with you. The title of the book, We've Got to Try How the Fight for Voting Rights Makes Everything Else Possible. I want to focus in on that part before the colon. We've got to try. It reads to me like fairly equal parts hope and despair. Is that accurate for you? I think the the great challenge for many of us, for me personally at least, is to avoid the temptation to despair, which is a, a very understandable one given the times we're living in. Um, there are so many things in our personal lives, in our public life as a country, that cause us to wonder whether we're going to make it. In Texas, for example, you have a state that is on the front lines of a national conversation about immigration. And while this debate is taking place, there are hundreds of people, human beings, who are dying because they cannot find a legal way to come into this country. As Congress for decades dithers in the face of this unmet need. And you kind of wonder, are are we ever going to make it? I live here in El Paso, right on the U.S.-Mexico border. We have in Texas, um, one of the harshest abortion bans in the United States of America. And not only does it make it impossible for a woman to obtain an abortion, it has an impact on accessing any kind of reproductive health care. And it helps to explain why Texas is at the epicenter of this maternal mortality crisis that is literally killing women at, at record numbers. And then the subject of the book, our, our democracy and the right to vote is under attack unlike any time in our lifetimes, at least since 1965 when President Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act into law. You add to that the despair that many Americans have about their choices for the presidency, the broken politics locally at a state level, nationally. And again, you wonder if if we're going to make it. So we've got to try is all about how you confront that temptation to despair. And in the book, I do this by looking backwards at those who faced much greater challenges, much longer odds, and nonetheless overcame them by continuing to try. The the character at the center of this book is a doctor named Lawrence Nixon. He was a black physician in El Paso at the turn of the last century, very civically engaged, found the first chapter of the NAACP anywhere in Texas in 1914. But in 1923, the Texas legislature passes a law that forbids him and any other African-American in Texas 
from voting. Nonetheless, Dr. Nixon in the next year, which is an election year, 1924, pays his poll tax, waits in line at his regular polling station, presents that poll tax receipt when he gets to the front of the line, and the election judge and the poll worker, who both recognize him by sight because Dr. Nixon's never missed an election, say, uh, hey, Doc, we can't let you vote. You know we can't do this. And he says, I know you can't, but I've got to try. And Dr. Nixon, for the next 20 years, wages this incredibly lonely and yet critical battle to try to integrate elections in Texas again, to ensure that people are able to be full citizens in the country for which they fight for, live in, pay taxes to. And by 1944, he and others are able to win a signal Supreme Court victory, Smith versus Allwright, that begins that integration and lays the path for President Johnson, the first Texas president, to sign into law the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which creates the first multiracial democracy in American history. So if you go back to 1923, when that all-white primary was made law in Texas, to 1965, what a long, lonely journey. But those who tried were the ones who won our democracy for us. And so at this moment of you know the temptation to despair and the fraught politics of, of America, we can't give in, we can't give up. We've got to get out there and fight as Dr. Nixon did. And we've got to try. And only by doing that will we have any chance of ultimately succeeding. North Dakota is home to five indigenous tribal nations, the three affiliated tribes, the Spirit Lake Nation, the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa, and the Sisseton Wapitan Oyate Nation. Talk about the specific challenges facing indigenous peoples and why you wanted to come and talk in North Dakota. You know, the whole foundational premise of, of this country is that we're all created equal and that we will be treated equally under the law and that we'll have equal opportunity to shape the course and the direction this country takes. Of course, 247 muscle menos years into this, we've never fully lived up to that promise. I'd love to think that we've never fully stopped trying to, but over time, what we the people means to America has evolved and again over time imperfectly and through stops and starts and sometimes taking a couple of steps backwards before we move forwards we've expanded the definition of who we the people are but those who've always been the target of voter suppression and voter intimidation and exclusion from the franchise literally being able to choose their representatives or to run for office themselves have historically been those who have been pushed to the margins in this country and in our society from its very foundation. In the book, of course, we center on Dr. Nixon and African-Americans in Texas and the states of the former Confederacy. We also look at language minorities like Spanish speakers in Texas and Arizona and other states who really only came into full political participation in the 1970s with the reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act that included allowances for language minorities. But you add to that those who were indigenous to this land long before Europeans came to our shores, long before there was a North Dakota or a Texas for that matter. And here you have a population that has never really fully, at least within the confines of the United States of America, 
been able to exercise self-determination, full sovereignty, or even until very, very recently, the ability to freely and fairly participate in our elections or run for elected office for that matter. So I think this message of those who have patiently and yet persistently dedicated their lives to winning the franchise and then using that to further expand it for others who've been left behind or counted out or forgotten altogether is critically important. And it's part of the reason that I'm coming to my not to have this conversation where I want to share what I've learned in the writing and research for this book, but I'm also there to listen and learn from those who have a lot to share and teach me. Yeah. And I'm fully expecting this conversation about um, those who are native to the land and those who have so much to offer this country and their communities, but historically have literally not been able to through law or custom in this country. Yeah, what do you already know about the unique challenges facing in particular, again, the people uh, living on reservations or have close ties to reservations? Uh, there are some issues about uh, the way that addresses are listed or the way that tribal IDs are issued. Those are really good uh, examples of how pernicious voter suppression can be. You know, the example I gave you earlier, 1923, the state legislature in Texas says, if you're black, you cannot vote, literally in black and white, no euphemisms involved. Well, today, that voter suppression comes in a different form. It may be a voter ID law that on its face seems to make common sense. But when you look at who has access to the approved kinds of ID, you begin to realize how these voter ID laws shape the electorate to keep those who are in power in power perpetually, unless those laws change. When you look at where voting locations are, in Texas, there have been more than 700 polling places closed over the last 10 years, most of those in the fastest growing black and brown neighborhoods in the state of Texas. What I know from listening to those in other states is that when we're looking at indigenous people in America, their access to ID, their access to a convenient polling location is very different from that of someone like me here in El Paso, Texas, or those who are favored within the electorate. Part of the genius of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was a committed intent, not just to remove barriers like poll taxes or literacy tests that have prevented people from voting, but to proactively make it easier for those who had functionally been drawn out of the franchise before. And to the spirit of your question, that work is very urgent at this moment. It's not like we fixed it in 1965. In fact, in 2013, in the Supreme Court decision, Shelby versus Holder, much of the essence of the Voting Rights Act was gutted in that decision, freeing states to further disenfranchise populations, again, who had been pushed, at least politically and civically, to the margins to keep them there, to stop any threat from those who currently hold power from having to face any kind of real opposition. And so this fight for voting rights is not an academic one. It's, uh, it's not an abstraction. It's very much connected to what we want to see in our lives. I'll give you an example. Um, visiting 
reservations throughout New Mexico, which is our border state here in Texas and very close to where I live in El Paso. The quality of the infrastructure, and I'm talking about roads, drainage, water, and importantly, schools, is so substandard. It is not found anywhere else that I've been to in the United States of America. And I live in one of the poorest urban counties in the United States. And yet the quality of infrastructure and investment that we see is significantly higher than what I was seeing as I traveled throughout New Mexico. That is absolutely connected to the right to vote and the exercise of that right. If those in power don't fear those they are supposed to serve, then those whom they're supposed to serve will never get their fair share of the resources or representation that they deserve. That is um, the, the very real world connection to this otherwise ethereal idea of democracy and the right to vote. We don't just want it because it's, it's our right here in this country. We want it because, as the subtitle of the book tries to explain, it makes everything else possible. Anything that you want to achieve in a society that's organized as a democracy, meaning that we will peacefully, nonviolently determine our fate, our future, our fortune together, if you don't bring everybody in, then some people, and again, these are the folks who've traditionally been pushed to the margins, are going to continue to receive the short end of the stick. So focusing on restoring these voting rights at a national level is an absolute imperative if we want to see conditions and quality of life improve for everyone in this country. The book has a lot of historical examples, but we have already in 2024 heard AI voices and seen AI-generated campaign videos. Um, what are you thinking about? What are you concerned about? What are you watching in terms of technology and upcoming elections? What I've learned in, in my time in, in politics, going back to run for the, the city council in El Paso or running for Congress or other races that I've been part of, either where I'm the candidate or I'm supporting another candidate, is there's absolutely nothing that beats in-person connection. You know, literally knocking on someone's door and having that face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball, human-to-human connection that is profound and transformative. It, it doesn't always go well, right? Like you can knock on someone's door and they are not having it or they're not excited about you or they belong to another political party and they don't want to have the conversation. But I have been so surprised over the years, no matter that I've done this tens of thousands of times, how beautiful a connection I can make when I show the common courtesy and deep respect of meeting somebody literally where they are. And it has been key to any kind of political success that I've had over the years. And my belief is that any technology, whether it's talking to somebody on the phone or texting them or broadcasting a message on social media, or as you bring up, somehow trying to slip under the radar using AI, those are all poor substitutes for the real thing. And my hunch is no matter how alluring or effective these new technologies might seem, no matter how disturbing they are to so many of us, if we will keep our eyes on the prize and stay focused on being with people literally in community. And that's what we're going to be doing tonight in, in Minot at Main Street Books, literally in the same room where we can all see one another 
and where the conversation is flowing in both directions. It's not someone talking to or down to others. It's everyone having a conversation together. Man, if we need anything in this country right now, we need that at a time that we are so polarized, so divided, and not because that's inherent to who we are. I, I really feel like the algorithms and social media and the siloing of cable TV and all the other things going on in our lives have really produced this dynamic that doesn't feel natural. And yet the only way you overcome it is, is showing up literally and being with people. And so that, that's why I'm going to Minot. And, and my hunch is that Minot, like El Paso, where I live, is a place where you don't often see folks who are trying to carry a national message or who are campaigning across the country um, or who are trying to drum up support or to engage in a conversation about what matters to this country. Our communities very often are the ones that are overlooked or are taken for granted. And just an interesting coincidence, you know, many years ago, in fact, 30 years ago, uh, I was touring the country in a punk rock band. Fast. And one of the places that we, we played was uh, Minot, North Dakota at the Minot um, Cultural Center. And I just remember what a beautiful show that was. And here were, you know, four kids from El Paso uh, who were playing to a bunch of kids in Minot, North Dakota. <laughs> but for that music, that community, the fact that we were literally showing up and connecting with folks where they were, never would have had that experience. And and it's just uh, wild to me that, that 30 years later, in 2024, I'll be back in Minot and, and hopefully getting to see some of the same people who were there at that show back in 94. Let's talk about the through line there coming in the 90s as a drummer in a post-hardcore punk band Foss uh, and also, you know, having once been a member of the computer hacker group Cult of the Dead Cow and uh, tricking producers of a public access TV show in Texas that you were part of a Christian band and doing all of these things that are sort of subverting authority. What's the through line? You made it to the U.S. House of Representatives. You ran for president. You launched a campaign. The beautiful thing to me about punk rock is that it allowed us to get past what was supposed to be, you know, popular culture. You know, this was in, in the in the 1980s and the 1990s, you know pre-internet it was what they served you on the radio or what was available to you in the big box record stores and going to my first punk rock show here in el paso at a place called sound seas and seeing bands you know comprised of kids who were roughly my same age but they were writing their own songs putting out their own records booking their own tour it absolutely was the most exciting thing in the world and, and the messages in the songs about, you know, not having to accept the world as you find it or, you know, as your parents tell you it has to be, but asking these really uncomfortable questions and, and getting past, you know, corporate rock and roll or corporate politics for that matter um, was, was really foundational for me. And there is a through line. I mean, as I travel the country in this book tour. And the very first place that I'm, I'm stopping is Minot, North Dakota, but I'll be um, going to 20 different cities over 20 days following that, 
doing this, you know, essentially on my own, I'll just, I'll be in a, in a car going from one place to the next and just kind of dependent on the, the kindness of, of strangers and the luck of the road. That very much reminds me of touring the country with the guys in Foss back in, in, in 94, as does, you know, so much of the message that comes through in this book and so much of the way that I've tried to um, be involved in, in politics, you know, rejecting the corporate side of this, um, rejecting what we're supposed to do and the way that we're supposed to do it and trying to find a much more direct, intimate connection with the people that I want to represent or serve, you know, listening to them in open-ended town hall meetings across Texas, across America, for, for that matter. Uh, that's really the spirit of it that that carries through. And so, um, you know, I try to I try to stay grounded in that. Uh, I try to not lose sight of that and um, remembering where I came from and how I came up is a big part of that. Remembering where you came from, I'm, I'm struck by an interview quote that you once gave to the Texas Observer talking about the El Paso of your youth. There's nothing dangerous. There was no energy. There was no risk. Uh, but in the book, you describe El Paso and the sister city in Mexico uh, of Juarez um, as united, not divided by the Rio Grande. This is a place about new beginnings, new starts, new creation. Uh, is this a both and or has your perspective changed as you've aged, as you have gone from punk rocker to politician? <laughs> you know, um, I wonder if my story is not unlike the story of kids all over the country. You know, you, you grow up where you're born and it's all you know and you're just excited to see the rest of the world. And for me, you know, having discovered punk rock and, um, you know, reading the punk rock Bible at the time, which was a, a magazine called Maximum Rock and Roll. And at the back of Maximum Rock and Roll, you'd see the tour dates for all your favorite punk rock bands. And you'd see them play, you know, Tucson, Arizona on Tuesday and Austin, Texas on Thursday. And you knew that they had to be passing through El Paso on Wednesday. But so many of those bands didn't didn't stop here because, you know, maybe the scene wasn't super organized. You know, maybe they didn't think they could make much money on it. For me, you know, just monomaniacally focused on on music. I wanted to be where the action and the energy and the excitement was. And for me, that ended up being New York. And I was lucky enough to get there, you know, before CBGB closed its doors uh, you know, to see all these bands that I've been listening to and ordering their records and see them in person, it was just incredibly thrilling. But then I moved back to El Paso in, in 1998 and, you know, just felt this draw, you know, to be close to my folks and to be back home again. But, you know, to your question, I really do think I saw it with, with new eyes and just, you know, had this epiphany like, oh my God, I don't think I understood how lucky I was to grow up here. There's no other place on the planet where two cities from two countries with two peoples speaking two different languages and two cultures come together in this one place to also have a chance to tell our community's story in the face of the the lies that you're hearing about the border being this, you know, death trap or war zone when El Paso is actually one of the safest cities in America. And I'd argue it's one of the safest, not despite, but because 
it's a city of immigrants. One out of every four people who live in this city were born somewhere else. And how lucky are we that they chose this community to make their stand and to raise their families, to start a business, to do whatever they are doing. And, and part of the reason it is so important that I tell this story, and it actually figures in this book, We've Got to Try, is that when we fail to tell our own story, others will tell it for us. And Trump talking about invasion and all the awful animals, again, his word, and criminals who are coming to get us, inspired somebody in 2019 to bring an AK-47 into a Walmart in El Paso and to slaughter 23 people there in a matter of minutes. And when he was finally arrested by police, he said that he came to kill Mexicans. He came to repel the invasion of Hispanics who were taking over the state of Texas. Those were his words. So the stories we tell about ourselves and the way we understand one another, again, going back to the conversation you and I had earlier about voting rights and democracy, it's not academic. It's not an abstraction. It has real world and literally life and death implications. And so telling this story and reminding people that this isn't an invasion, that we're a country of immigrants, that we can handle this. We're the greatest country on the planet. And we're great because we're comprised of the people of the planet. And we've got to find and we will find a way to make it work. That all comes down to El Paso and Juarez and my life experience here. And I'm fully hoping that will be part of the conversation that we have tonight in Minot. And again, that conversation starts at 5 p.m. at Main Street Books. We're visiting today with Beto O'Rourke about his book, We've Got to Try, How the Fight for Voting Rights Makes Everything Else Possible. Beto, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Still to come on Main Street, a new film explores a split military allegiance. That's coming up after this. This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Craig Blumenshine. And come November, Ashley, it's time for another, of course, presidential election. And it's looking like it'll be a rematch of the 2020 election, one that resulted in the events of January 6th when the United States Capitol was stormed as Congress was preparing to certify the results of the election. So what if something like that were to happen again, but with split military allegiance? That's the topic of the new film War Game, which premiered last month at the Sundance Film Festival in Utah. Jeremy Hobson, host of The Middle, spoke with many of those involved in a recent episode of The Middle, which airs at 3 o'clock Central on Fridays right here on Prairie Public. And as we hear in this excerpt from War Games, it features a number of former military and government officials playing different roles in a real-time simulation of a January 6th-style disruption. Former Montana Governor Steve Bullock plays the president, who has just won a close election, but his rival says the election was stolen. The film was directed by Tony Gerber and Jesse Moss, and was the brainchild of the Vet Voice Foundation, whose CEO Janessa Goldbeck is a Marine Corps veteran herself. I started the conversation by asking Goldbeck where the idea for War Game came from. We had three retired generals pen an op-ed in the Washington Post after January 6th, 2021, and they were all advisors to our foundation. We are a national nonpartisan organization that represents over a million and a half veterans and military families across the country. And one of their recommendations was for the administration to do an exercise like this. This is a very standard way of training uh, in the military to do an exercise where you game out situations and vulnerabilities that you could be exposed to. And we realized we had the network to put on an exercise like this ourselves, um, to do it in a nonpartisan manner, to involve 
administration officials from the last five presidential administrations from both parties, people who are deeply concerned. Because the reality is that, as I said in the clip, the alarms are flashing red. There is an increasing amount of extremism in this country, and the military is a microcosm of our society. So when you have folks who are well-trained, who understand how to seed violence and create uh, discord and division, and they also have military training, it becomes an extremely challenging and frightening scenario. So we really wanted to see uh, what happens if there's another contested election, but this time rogue elements of the military participated. And I said you're a Marine Corps veteran. Is there something in your background that you saw people that you thought maybe they would go rogue in this way? Or is this just something that uh, a fear that existed? Well, we know that uh, military veterans were uh, overrepresented in the folks who participated in the insurrection on January 6th. We know that extremism uh, is a rising problem in our active duty forces. There have been uh, multiple studies that examine this issue. Um, you know, when you're serving in the military, you're serving in a nonpartisan manner. You may have your own political beliefs and values. That's one of the great beauties of the institution is that people from all walks of life can come together and achieve a common cause. But when we have these elements in our society that are now believing that actually committing violence and uh, trying to overthrow the duly elected U.S. government is patriotic, uh, that's a pretty big challenge for us to tackle. And I think the military is, has acknowledged that it is an issue, but there are many things that they still could do. Jesse Moss, you're one of the directors and a producer as well. Why make this into a film? Who is it for? Well, first and foremost, to confront questions that I have, uh, that's where I start as a filmmaker. Uh, how do I make sense of what happened on January 6th and what is our political future? Um, bringing together these experienced public servants, they were asked to improvise their roles and their words based on their lived experience. And that was the exciting combination that we saw. This was documentary, live improvisational theater, dystopian science fiction, and political three thriller all at once. And what kind of film would it be? What kind of story could we tell? And could we invite people to a conversation about what we all care about, which is our country, our institutions, our values? Tony Gerber, you're also a director of this film. Uh, the issue of how to portray January 6th has become very polarizing. Was it an insurrection? Was it a rebellion? Was it an event? Was it, as Donald Trump says, a tourist visit gone wrong? Um, he's now referring, though, to people who were convicted as hostages, January 6th hostages. How do you keep this film from being seen as political when such a large portion of this country doesn't even want to think about January 6th anymore? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, I can tell you that, um, you know, Famously, Francis Ford Coppola said that a movie gets written three times. First time in the writing, second time in the shooting, third time in the editing. In the case of our documentary, the fourth time will be when it's released into the world. Right? But I can tell you that in making this film, we really leaned away from um, the potential for the story of this war game and our film to be spun uh, by... by QAnon voices, for example. Um, you know, it's important that this film um, brings people together. It's not a look back at the last January 6th, it's a look forward. And it's a film that's really intended not just to remind folks of a potential nightmare, but to also bring hope, right? Uh, and belief in, in our political system and our institutions. It is a very different time now, though, than it was when you made this film. Uh, Donald Trump is almost certain to be the nominee of the Republican Party again uh, for president. He has said 
He should be immune from prosecution, even if he crosses a line. He has said he wants to be a dictator on day one. Do you think the film should be seen in a different light now than when you filmed it? I, I wish that it were less relevant in, in some way, but uh, and, and it's true that Trump was on the periphery when we began this project, but we know that the threats that this exercise in this film confront or go beyond one person. They are a, a kind of cancer in our country and a division that you talked about. And I think that regardless of the outcome of the 2024 election, this is a problem that persists within the military. And the military's role, its function as this bulwark of our democracy, something we take for granted is something we have to talk about to foresee the unforeseeable. It's sometimes hard to look at those things, but we have a responsibility to. And it's our job as filmmakers to find it an inventive and creative way to bring you to that conversation. Governor Steve Bullock, uh, you're what I think we could call a moderate former governor of Montana. What is your sense of how the average American, people in your state, view the events of January 6th and how worried they are about it today? Just a few weeks ago, there was a poll nationally that said a quarter of Americans think that January 6th was incited by the FBI. Hmm. Uh, you look at it right now, there's 171 members of Congress, one-third representing 37 states that say there are election deniers. Well, something like 66% of Republicans uh, in the Iowa caucuses believed that Biden was not a legitimate president. So, yeah, where are we today in Montana or all across the country? We're at a very dangerous point. And I think the idea of the film isn't to look backwards, it's to look forward. The notion that literally 25% of Americans think the FBI created this in January 6th is such a challenge that needs to be discussed. And it doesn't need to be discussed necessarily just in Washington, D.C., right? It needs to be discussed in communities all across red and blue. Because this isn't about politics, mm -hmm. right? This is about a country and norms and a rule of law that we all expect. What do you think, uh, Senator Heidi Heidkamp? You also would be considered a moderate. You represented North Dakota in the Senate. Uh, are your neighbors in North Dakota worried about this? Should they be? No, I, I think that one of the reasons why this film is so important is denial. The country's in denial, right? So we deny that it even happened. That was like a tourism problem that was um, incited by the FBI, but these people are hostages. And, and so there's no consistency in how we're looking at it. And that's why it is so important. We found out that after the January 6th committee hearings, that people started understanding and appreciating because they saw it on television, prime time, and they watched it. And it reignited the feelings that they felt on January 6th, which was horror about what was happening in our country. That then gives, there's a period of gaslighting that goes on, that really wasn't that bad, those folks are patriots, blah, blah, blah. We have to have events like this movie to remind people. So that's why the movie is important. The biggest enemy of protection of the democracy is people saying, it can never happen again. I'm not saying it's probable that it could happen again. Is it possible? Absolutely. When people believe that somehow along the way, something has been taken from them, that there is a rigged system, and they can't even appreciate the fairness of their elections. I want to make just one point of optimism. I watched the 2022 midterms holding my breath. 
because a lot of the people on the ballot were selected by Donald Trump. And the question was, were those people, when they lost, going to deny the election results? All but one, they all conceded. And so that's a bit of optimism. And so when we create the idea that the norm has to be established of understanding and realizing that our elections are fair, they achieve a result that promotes democracy. But if we deny that it could happen again, guess what? We're unprepared for what could happen. That was former North Dakota Senator Heidi Heidkamp speaking with me as part of a panel at the Sundance Film Festival in Park City, Utah. She plays the president's senior advisor in the documentary film War Game. That was an excerpt from last week's episode of The Middle with Jeremy Hobson. You can listen to the whole show at listentothemiddle.com. Up next, Soup Season with Rick Guion. We'd like to thank the North Dakota Council on the Arts for supporting arts programming here on Prairie Public. You're listening to Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg, joined now by Rick Guion, who joins us once a week for Prairie Plates. Rick, thanks for joining us today. Nice to be with you again. And today it's not so much a plate, it's a bowl, because it's soup season. (laughs) And you have been eating a great deal of soup, uh, Nefla soup at 16 restaurants and French onion at 10 restaurants here. So set us up for what do you look for in a good Nefla soup? Nefla soup needs to have some of the homemade elements And I think Malier, who I was at the Hot Dish Festival with a a couple weeks ago, would agree with me. And I saw some photos from Bernie's and East Grand Forks of they emphasize homemade dumplings. Mm -hmm. And that's that's the key, I think, to a really good Nefla soup. Also, not too many potatoes, in my opinion. Okay, okay. (laughs) Take note. Is that blasphemy? Uh, You know? (laughs) I don't, I wouldn't go that far. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, fine. Because I do like a few potatoes. Luna in Fargo uh, uses yellow potatoes, which I think have a really good texture. So I would suggest yellow potatoes, uh, you know, Mm. those sorts of things. And then there's a good Nephla and Mandan too, right? Yes. uh, I've had it at Ohm's Cafe in Mandan um, numerous times, and that's right about on the Highway 6 turnoff to go down 21 to go when I'm visiting relatives in Regent and Mott. And so I stop there. You can get cheese buttons there sometimes. Mm, cheese uh, buttons. I know, <laughs> yes. That that hearty German from Russia affair, yes. <laughs> well, what to avoid in a Nefla soup? I'm uh, guessing non-homemade dumpling? Yeah, I mean hard dumplings or dumplings that have been sitting in the broth too long and then they just start kind of falling apart too many potatoes that's another thing too much thickening mm. in in Kukin country in a lot of the and I'm talking about Wishik and Napoleon in that area they don't really thicken it a whole heck of a lot and if you read the Gudis Essen cookbook put out by Prairie Public um, the batches of Nefla the recipes don't really call for thickening mm. a lot so it's it's a little thinner but you'll find in Fargo here and in Bismarck, the restaurants will thicken it quite a bit. But, yeah, I mean, good Nefla soup just needs to have the homemade element, the good stock, uh, and the homemade dumplings, not too many potatoes. Those are my opinions anyway. Okay. And do you make it with a stock or with a broth? And what would be even the difference between those? Yeah, I would I would probably make it with um, a, a stock. I'm a homemade bone broth guy. It just 
taste better, but if you are in a pinch of broth, there's differences. Stock uses more bone broth. It's a little bit thicker due to collagen, some of those things. Some people roast the bones, that sort of thing. Like mm. uh, fuzz, like a 10 or 12-hour stock. Uh, broth, a lot of times, is made from bullion or just a simple a quick stock, veggie stock, chicken stock with some flesh. Um, but I, I mm. like stock. It's it's more rich. It has that robust homemade flavor. But if you don't have time, a broth will do, yes. Okay, yeah, that's good to know. Um, are you usually making your own? Yes, I like to make chicken stock uh, once or twice a year, usually in the late fall, and then freeze it for a while, and okay. then I have bags of it. So you do big, big batches. Yeah, I have like a 12-quart 12, 12 all-clad Mm. big stock pot that I do that in and that really works quite well yeah, yes that's nice what I end up doing is I keep a little drawer in my freezer and every time I cut vegetables it's like okay the top of the carrot here goes in the peel of the onion and then whenever that basket is full I put it in the instant pot overnight <laughs> no so. that's that's a good plan I mean a lot of people do that these days and it food waste is a big issue I yeah. think in the states here and we need to look at those things and doing those things at home to help out uh, I think is really important. Yeah. What are a couple of things that you like to add to a stock or a broth that, you know, maybe you wouldn't think of? I always throw in ginger or turmeric. Well, yeah, and it depends on what you're making um, for just plain chicken stock. And if, is it is it kind of a Jap- Japanese, Chinese, those kind of Asian-style stocks, mm. broths, or is it French, European, American-style um, that depends on like with fall broth, you're going to put in ginger, like you're saying, and some of those things, charred onions, that sort of thing. Um, but French style, it's kind of just bones, carrot, celery, onions, mirepoix, that sort of thing. Sure. Bay leaves. I do like to add peppercorns in that sort of stock. It does add kind of this brownish yellow, uh, without adding like turmeric or something like that to give it kind of a yellow color. But I think ethnically, culturally, it just kind of depends where you're at and what you're trying to do. Sure. Well, you know, talking about a French version of a stock and, and of a broth, and then you also went on this tour of French onion soups, 10 restaurants. So set us up here. What <laughs> makes something a French onion soup? Well, there are a lot. This soup <laughs> is pretty complicated, and it needs to be done right in order for it to be good. You need to use the right cheese. It needs to be like a Gruyere, Emmental, Swiss kind of nutty, twangy cheese. That's the top, so number one. Uh, the the bread layer needs to be like a baguette sliced. It needs to be toasted. Don't just throw bread chunks in there. Mm. That's a big thing because they get soggy when you put the soup under the broiler to melt the cheese. Okay. Do you want to be working with an old bread then so it's a little bit still? Or do you want fresh bread um, even though it's like going to be sucking up the liquid? Yeah, it can't be too old because okay. no matter what, you're going to get, you don't want like super hard tech. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but a day old or whatever, I, I think that doesn't really matter. But uh, just make sure it's toasted. Like at Beer and Fish Company, they actually toast the bread in onion butter. Ooh. I and that, get behind that. Yes, exactly. And that's what made theirs number one in, in Fargo and I've had French onion soup all over the United States, but um, yeah, it's, and the broth needs to have that homemade element. You need to cook the onions right. The onions need to be like rendered down and then caramelized Mm. at the last minute. And so you get that nice fond at the bottom that you're going to deglaze with white wine or sherry or something like that. 
help us out with that step. Because sometimes things sound really complicated because they are. And then sometimes they just sound complicated because they're another language. <laughs> right. <laughs> but they're not. No, and in French cooking, you have to be kind of strategic with things and you need to figure out what is the, I'd look on YouTube for legitimate videos or go to some cookbooks, French cookbooks, that sort of thing. But yeah, I mean, you're going to cook down the onions. It takes a while. Uh, it depends on how many you're using. I Six onions I usually use. It mm. takes about an hour. On medium low, you're cooking them down until they kind of slowly brown. Then at the last minute, you're going to turn up the heat to like medium high. High will maybe burn it, so you just kind of got to watch it. But you're kind of stirring those onions, making sure they don't burn. But you want the brown fond at the bottom. I know that's more of a term for meat, but I think it can be used for veggies too. And then deglaze it with that white wine and sherry. I like both white wine and sherry. Some people put a little port in there. Mm. A little bit's fine, but a lot, you're going to get too much of a sweetness, in my opinion. And I do like a bundle of fresh thyme in it, too, and it gives it that kind of French flavor. Mm. Yeah. Well, we check in with Ricky on Four Prairie Plates at once a week. Thank you, Rick. This was delicious. <laughs> Soup's on. West Virginia's Democratic Senator Joe Manchin says he thought about making a third-party bid for president, but he won't because he doesn't want to be a spoiler. There's no way I could support or vote for Donald Trump. I think it would be very detrimental to our country. But he's not enamored of President Biden either. So who does he want to be president? That's tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Starting at 4 a.m. Central, right here on Prairie Public. North Dakota Native American Essential Understanding Number 2 is about learning and storytelling. It states, Traditional teaching and the passing on of knowledge and wisdom was done through storytelling, song, ceremony, and daily way of life, often incorporating specific gender and age-specific responsibilities. These continue to be some of the best modes for learning for both Native and non-Native learners. In this episode of Dakota Datebook, we'll listen to Vincent Grant, enrolled member of the Turtle Mountain Band of the Chippewa, talk about contemporary rendezvous reenactors. They traded for tobacco and, and all the other things I mentioned, you know, and, and uh, iron knives and tomahawk heads and axe heads and cooking kettles and whatnot. So it was quite a Quite a quite a little deal to to hit rendezvous. So now we've got kind of got a reenactment group that I belong to, uh, mostly Minnesota crews. We got a few from North Dakota, but mostly Minnesota. So we have rendezvous like eight or nine of them a year. So we go in and have a weekend, um, three days, four days rendezvous, and then they have a Northwest area rendezvous, and it's uh, seven or nine states up in the north central part here, and uh, you usually have a nine-day rendezvous. So you go in on a Friday, and then you're all the, there all the week till the next Sunday. And all the different clubs get together and put on competitions and, and uh, exhibitions and and like that, you know? And so it's quite an interesting day, deal, you know? So I brought some stuff, like I showed you the, the, the Beaver that they trapped for. It wasn't only beaver, though. They trapped for coyotes and fox and, and 
raccoons, mink, uh, they brought buffalo hides and deer hides, elk hides, whatever they could get a hold of. They brought it all in to, to trade it all. And they would, uh, as they hunted, you know, they'd, they'd take what they needed from the animal or what they could use. They'd take all the meat and horns and hooves and bones and sinew and everything else, and they used I'm Scott Simpson. If you'd like to learn more about the North Dakota Native American essential understandings and to listen to more indigenous elder interviews, visit www.teachingsofourelders.org. Dakota Datebook is produced in cooperation with the State Historical Society of North Dakota. Funding for this series is from Humanities ND and the North Dakota Department of Public Instruction. Dakota Pro Musica presents a prayer for Ukraine a concert to honor the Ukrainian communities of North Dakota and to commemorate the second anniversary of the Ukraine-Russia War. Ukrainian folk music and liturgical music will be performed by the professional choral ensemble of Dakota Pro Musica, led by Dr. Jason Thomes and two guest conductors. The concerts are Saturday, February 24th at St. John the Baptist Ukrainian Catholic Church in Belfield and Sunday, February 25th at St. George's Episcopal Church in Bismarck. More information online at dakotapromusica.org. And by AARP North Dakota, fighting fraud, promoting financial resilience, and offering local events designed with you in mind. AARP North Dakota is helping your money, health, and happiness live as long as you do. Learn more at aarp.org nd. And that's a wrap for today's Main Street. Thank you so much for joining us tomorrow on the show. It's the Fargo Public Library's Northern Narratives and Northern Focus project. It allows folks from all over the state and the region to participate and be part of the library's legacy. That's coming up tomorrow on Main Street, and we hope to see you then.